Hey everyone and welcome to the 62nd edition of DF Direct Weekly. It's our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news in a period where there isn't actually much gaming and technology news, but we persist. And persisting with me, first of all, Alex Vitalia. Hey there, Rich. <laughs> I was just adjusting my chair here. Um, I'm really excited. One week hiatus uh, to get that FSR 2.0 video done. Got it done, and I'm back in the chair and happy to talk about all these wonderful items today. Back in the chair. You did you did the video standing up then? Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, big bunch of FSR 2.0 questions coming up later, and we shall be answering them all. And also joining us to discuss the latest news, John Linneman. I'm here, Rich. Uh, once again, you say we have no news to talk about, but looking at the dock, there's some fun stuff on here, I think. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's try, let's try it. Let's see how it all pans out. <laughs> okay, first news story of the week. Um, obviously, Sony has been prepping for some time for its relaunch of PlayStation Plus with three distinct tiers. And uh, this week, they actually shared some games that you'll be able to get in those uh, two additional higher tiers. The key point of contention has always been the so-called classic games that they're adding to the mix, uh, because fundamentally, we've not seen a huge amount of... Um, uh, I'd say curation of the PlayStation library from Sony. This is a chance to put things right. But the reaction hasn't exactly been positive, right, John? Yeah, so I would say that when it comes to their PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 lineup, it's perfectly fine. There's some very good games on there. I think people will be satisfied with that. But as you say, the classic games catalog, there's both some good news here and some bad news. Uh, I actually want to start with the good news portion where they specifically call out in the text that players who have previously purchased digital versions of select games from the original PlayStation and PSP generation will not have to make separate purchases or sign up for PlayStation Plus to play these on PS4 or PS5. And that is honestly completely unexpected because it's not something we've seen Sony necessarily honor in the past. Uh, it's certainly not something Nintendo ever honors. Um, it was so, you know, they're taking a page from, I guess you could say the Microsoft playbook and actually honoring older digital purchases. And I do support that. That's a very good move. Uh, but secondly, so they, they, they describe this as an early look at a selection of games that will be available. So presumably this is not all of the games. The games listed here, I think, are good. There's stuff like Ape Escape or Ape Escape, as some people might say. Uh, Hot Shots Golf, IQ, Intelligent Cube, Jumping Flash, Siphon Filter. Weirdly, Super Stardust Portable for PSP. I'm not really sure why that's on there. That's a strange one. But then, you know, the original Mr. Driller and Tekken 2 are there, which are both fantastic. But then two Worms games, PlayStation versions, for some reason. But... You know, the PlayStation 1 library is so vast, PSP as well for that matter, uh, and I don't feel that they're represented here well with this initial list, and you would normally expect them to put their best foot forward. So I wonder if it's more a matter of the deals aren't done, they're just slowly teasing stuff out, but to make this actually worthwhile, I feel that they need to go deeper into the PlayStation back catalog and not just focus on a few top line games like this right i mean there's so much stuff here and so many games that are now expensive if you want to own them like physically anyway that could be included 
and I hope we see that going forward, just for the for the people that are going to be subscribing to the service at least. The lineup is strange. Why they would announce these games to begin with as the kind of uh, vanguard of of their classic games lineups kind of bizarre. Where's Ridge Racer? There's no Ridge Racer. That's that's kind of like you know the the classic PlayStation franchise. It launched PlayStation One, launched PlayStation Two. I mean that's 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 a must-have game in my opinion. It launched PSP. It launched, it PSP. launched on PS3. It launched on PS Vita. Uh, PS4 was the first time we didn't have a Ridge Racer game on day one, and that's a damn shame. But you know, it's it's just kind of weird because obviously I was around in that time period reviewing games. There was it, it was a time of massive excitement. It was just uh, a great time to be in the games industry and a great great time to be a gamer. But I'm not, you know, I'm looking at these games. I'm thinking, yeah, not bad, pretty good, hmm, quite like that one. But I'm not actually taken back to that classic uh, era. Of thinking to myself, wow, this was just like absolutely phenomenal time to be a console gamer. I'm just thinking, hmm, okay, fair enough. Um, so f- from that perspective, I think it's a bit of a miss. And you know, we're talking about licensing, and maybe Ridge Racer is difficult to license with um with its music tracks or something but you know obviously they've they've obviously got a relationship with namco there because tekken 2 is there tekken 2 bizarre well i mean namco doesn't really use um licensed music in their racing games right like if they have original in-house artists doing the music and they're awesome so i don't think that would be an issue and the cars are not licensed either they're all original creations just for ridge racers so i really don't know <laughs> It is kind of bizarre, but there's um, a, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, something else which is kind of interesting is the way they've um, actually included uh, PS4 remasters of earlier PlayStation games into the classics lineup. Um, and, and it's a mixture here because some of them appear to be PlayStation 2 games running under that dodgy emulator, while others appear to be full, full-blooded uh, remasters that were actually put out as like full price games for PlayStation 4 uh, but they've all been kind of included in this classics lineup and I'm not quite sure why those um, PS4 remasters are, are included in there rather than in the lower tiers seems like a bit of an artificial uh, sort of distinction to me I don't know what you make about that well one of the weird things about it is that these PS4 uh, PS2 emulations those notoriously haven't worked well on PS5 and backwards compatibility mode. Uh, many of them are completely broken. So to me, this at least suggests that some changes have happened behind the scenes and bringing these over to the new service, because there's no way they're going to launch this and have, you know, games not that be don't played work. on PS5, yeah. right? Like <laughs> that's not going to happen. I don't necessarily expect any drastic changes though, because as you say, the emulation was pretty dodgy uh, to be honest. Um, I'm I'm still more curious about what PSP and PS1 games will look like to see how well they've... I hope they embrace the style that was present with PlayStation 3, whereas they kept the original Pixel. Uh, basically, all the characteristics of PlayStation were still there. Crisp pixels, nearest neighbor scaling, and in fact, it actually ran the game slightly faster. So titles that had a lot of slowdown could run at a higher frame rate when played on a PlayStation 3, for instance. And I hope that this is consistent with what we see going forward here. But again, we're going to have to wait and test. Uh, looking at the PS4 and PS5 game catalog, obviously P- very PS4 heavy. Uh, there's a lot of material to, to wade through there. A big bunch of games. 
But ultimately, it looks pretty much as you'd hope, really. It looks as though the entirety or the, the majority of the first party output from the PlayStation 4 era is in there. Uh, the early days of PlayStation 5, it looks it looks fine, right? I think if you're a newcomer to, to PlayStation 5, uh, this is a great way to catch up, potentially without, you know, having to spend a lot of money because, you know, obviously games like uh, Demon's Souls were were very, very expensive when they launched. So I, I think this is all looking pretty good. It's just the upper tier, which... Uh, and here's the thing, right? The upper tier has to be... You know, it's got to deliver value, and it's it's got to deliver value to the to the absolute hardcore of the PlayStation audience. And um, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot to prove there. <laughs> I, I'm I'm very saddened by that, just because there's so much potential here. There's so many amazing games, on, especially on PlayStation One and PSP, that I think a lot of people are maybe not aware of. That would just be a perfect fit for the service, and really. Well, with the rise of indie games and pixel art today, I think a lot of that stuff holds up way better than you might expect. And people would be genuinely shocked by how good these games still are, but they're really not tapping into it. And I I don't fully understand that. I'm, it's, it's pretty disappointing. Yes, um, obviously there is PlayStation 3 content, most of it streamed. Presumably the legacy PlayStation Now system, we will be taking a look at this um but yeah i mean actually looks like there's fewer games streaming than there was in playstation now but obviously this might simply be just like a a summary uh, rather than a complete list um and the game trials are there uh, you're getting uncharted legacy of thieves collection uh, horizon forbidden west uh, both of those for playstation 5 and um yeah some samples for cyberpunk 2077 farming simulator 22 it's for you alex that's for me <laughs> Uh, and uh, the amazing <laughs> Tiny Tina's Wonderland, uh, John's favorite game. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> WWE, there, like you know, it's, that's, that's, for me. Some of the best. that's for yeah, that's, that's for Rich, yeah, Rich and Audi. You guys can enjoy that. <laughs> okay, well, I think it's that's really all we've got to say about this at the moment. Um, pretty much things have landed as expected, really, and uh, we kind of expected to see something a bit more impressive and special for the premium tier hasn't materialized yet but um hopefully we'll get an early access to that whenever it appears and we can have a good look around i mean looking at the, looking at what we have here just as a final thought i will say from what i can tell the primary difference between a service like this and say game pass really just comes down to the lack of day one availability of major titles and sony has noted that they basically can't afford to do that and I do kind of believe that. I mean, I don't think that they have that Microsoft money, basically. Microsoft can actually afford, uh, for as far as we know anyway, to, to, to do that, to sink a lot of money into development of these big games and then still include them on their service on day one. I don't think Nintendo or Sony actually could afford to do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it's going to limit the, uh, the reach of it compared to Game Pass, that's for sure. Game Pass is also interesting in that they're expanding beyond Xbox as a console platform. Obviously, it's early days there, yet the PC side of things is not exactly where it should be. Yeah, it's like but, streaming. So. Yeah, but um, there's going to be expansion there. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis also on including the cloud as a, as a target for that as well. Uh, again, early days there. It's not hugely impressive at the moment. I think it's just... Um, there's obvious there's like a venn diagram right crossover between uh, playstation plus and uh, game pass but i still think there's a good 
uh, area where Game Pass is still in a class of its own. But, you know, oh, for sure. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to the next topic then. So <laughs> there have been rumblings about this one for some time. And um, it seems certain now that The Last of Us, the original game, is being remade for PlayStation 5. Uh, there was talk of um, various Sony studios being involved with it at the early stages. It looks like Naughty Dog has taken that project back in-house. Stories emerging this week, uh, which kind of um, defy belief, but who knows, that this remake is actually almost complete and will be coming this year, which would be very welcome because there's not a huge amount of games coming out this year. Um, but the fact that we haven't seen anything on it yet is kind of bizarre if it is coming out this year. Uh, I guess, first of all, since there isn't really a huge amount of firm information to go on, Alex, what do you actually, what would you actually want to see from a Last of Us remake, bearing in mind that it's already been remastered? Yeah, I know. That's the thing to always think about, that there's a pretty great PS4, PS4 Pro version of this game. Um, you know, you've looked at it a lot. Um, so I think the thing to uh, what I would really like out of this would be something that emphasizes the PlayStation 5's strengths. Uh, I would like to see a game that focuses on 60 FPS for one uh, by its default mode, but also focuses on those next generation features. Um, I don't know how you could work in SSD kind of level stuff, like large world streaming into a game that already has a very fit design. So I don't know if the remake would take liberties there with the design at all. But I would like to actually see a lot of ray tracing. Um, and there's no, nothing real, nothing, there's nothing preventing them from doing that. And I actually, originally when I heard about this, what, when did we hear about this? I want to feel like it was the beginning of this year, maybe earlier than that. Um, I kind of felt like this was a next gen prep project, kind of like, what was it? Like Gears of War Ultimate Edition was for the coalition. You know, where it's and like the last of us remastered or the last of us remastered was too, where they even said, like, we had to get to grips with the new console. And that was actually huge. They had a big presentation on that back then. Um, so I kind of feel like this is what it could be. It could give us a glimpse at what uh, Naughty Dog is going to be or whatever the associate studios were on uh, involved with this, what they're kind of planning to do with the PlayStation 5 hardware as time goes on. Uh, that's what I would like to see about uh, with it. But. I also don't know exactly what uh, platforms it's targeting uh, because The Last of Us Part 2 was, you know, on PlayStation 4. So is this cross-gen? I have no idea. The, the timing makes me think it might be still be cross-gen, actually, if it's releasing this year. My goodness. Interesting question, right, John? Because um, what would we want from a, a Last of Us remake? Presumably, you would expect to see The Last of Us 2 engine deployed which does put it in cross-gen territory, but the concept of remaking the game for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, it could kind of limit your possibilities, perhaps? Uh, it's, it's a tricky one. What do you make of this whole situation? I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think that this is a good candidate for a remake. Uh, this is a game that's still reasonably modern, right? Especially in its remastered form. Uh, you're already getting a nice smooth 60 FPS experience there. It you know it looks dated in some aspects, but still, it's it looks reasonably attractive, and it's such a narrative heavy game. We know what happens in that story already, right? Uh, I feel like this is pouring a lot of resources into something that really I don't see the purpose to it that much. So in that sense, I would if if they're going ahead with this, I would want to see it be a radical departure. Uh, I know this would get the fans angry for sure, but I would want the actual surprises in there. I would want major changes to the core game design. That'd be nice. At the very least, 
it should be up to par with The Last of Us Part Two, which I know people tend to prefer the original, but the sequel plays dramatically better. Like the actual core mechanics are much more polished. Uh, the fact that you can actually move while crouching or crawling around and you can actually you know scout out the scenes while avoiding the enemies rather than just hiding as you did in the original uh, that makes it more compelling on its own but yeah i mean i don't think it would be cross-gen though i genuinely do not believe that they would re put the money into remaking something like this and then not have it be some sort of visual showpiece right like w what other reason would you do this other than other than for that right to showcase what they can do visually because it's pretty obvious that naughty dog's next actual game is probably a long way away and this is probably something they devised to sort of plug a gap so they at least get something out on the new generation uh that's my best guess on this mm -hmm. they have got the tv show as well which is a, a nice opportunity to to revisit that story possibly um yeah i agree with you i'd like to see it be a playstation 5 exclusive um i'd like to see it as a proving ground for naughty uh, naughty dog to actually um uh, you know transition across to playstation 5 uh, similar to what the last of us uh, remastered actually was back in the day right you know obviously there were huge improvements once we got uncharted 4 but this was like their their kind of project to to transition across um, the timing of it, though, it's, I, I don't know, you know, for a massive remake to actually sort of fully remake the game as opposed to remastering it again effectively would require a lot of time to reach that sort of similar level to what we saw in The Last of Us Part Two. So I am kind of um, suspicious about a 2022 release date, uh, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see there. We're just in such an interesting era now where the creation of these games requires so much uh, staffing and just effort and time to create that even a remake now, you know, we're skeptical that, oh, it probably won't come out within the first couple of years of the system's life. And again, things have changed so much. It's not at all the same. But in building this PlayStation 3 video, I look, one of the games I looked at is called Full Auto 2, right? It's not a great game necessarily, but it, it's a sequel to a game called Full Auto. Full Auto came out in March of 2006, and Full Auto 2 came out in, like, December of 2006. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, this kind that. of stuff could happen, and it's insane to look at how fast things moved. And everybody was like, oh, it's taking so long for games to come out. But no, games were coming out, like, crazy fast back then. But now everybody just expects, like, oh, yeah, the next project is going to take at least five or six or seven years. And it often does. And I don't know how we roll that back. I, I don't, I, I'm curious if this is actually sustainable long-term, but that's a completely separate conversation that this just reminded me of basically. Obviously there's been a lot of game delays this year. There's uh, been uh, kind of threadbare release, <laughs> release game calendar. <laughs> and believe me, we feel it. <laughs> Obviously our job is to cover games and when there are no games coming out, that is problematic. And obviously there was a further blow dealt uh, last week where it was revealed that Starfield and Redfall, you know, two key games from Bethesda Game Studio, vastly important for Game Pass and Microsoft, they have been delayed into 2023. And, well, what have we got left coming out in 2022? Um, people are holding on hope to God of War Ragnarok. 
But uh, yes, yeah, a bit of a hammer blow that these games are not going to reappear in this year. In the case of Redfall, I still don't really know what the game is about <laughs> because we've we've just seen one kind of pre-rendered trailer, as far as I'm aware. Um, but Starfield, again, I don't I don't think we actually saw actual gameplay from that. If we did, it was very tightly scripted, and it was only sort of snippets anyway. So on the one hand, I'm not surprised that these games have been delayed. And I also think. The industry at large is um, kind of suffering from burnout from the pandemic period where everybody pushed so hard to make the impossible possible that there has to be some sort of level of consequence to that. But I'm going to go to you on this, John. I mean, it's a blow, isn't it? But probably for the best. This is always a difficult topic because talking to various developers, you know, at first glance, you think, okay, a delay means more time, less crunch, that kind of thing. But in reality, that's usually... From what I can tell, it doesn't actually seem to be the case, and they're just going to be continuing to push extra hard for those more months, which really makes me think it's just not ready. Uh, hence the delay, I suppose. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's in their best interest to hopefully get it out in a condition that's actually stable, polished, and solid. The fact that it's only releasing on Xbox Series consoles and the PC is actually a really good start for that. I mean, you've got to think back to their last two big releases, Fallout 76, which they only seemingly partially worked on, BGS, and then Fallout 4. These games launched in terrible condition, technically, like absolutely abysmal. Uh, they can't do that again. <laughs> they really shouldn't. That would not be a good thing. And I hope that this means that they're actually able to get there and ensure that the final result is reasonably polished like i don't expect perfection given the the scale of what these guys build right uh so you know but i i would like it to be in a good good condition at least but yeah this is the thing is though that the the situation is interesting because previously bethesda game studios was kind of a poster child for how to do these announcements right whereas with fallout 4 right they came out at e3 and they're like Hey, we're announcing Fallout 4. Here's a bunch of gameplay stuff. This is what we want to do with it. It's coming out this fall, and it did come out this fall. And yes, technically it was pretty broken, but you know, the marketing cycle was very, very short. And I think that was really effective at like capturing the audience. Whereas with Starfield, it's something we've known about for so long. They keep talking about it. Now it's delayed. And I don't think it's going to affect the success of it, mind you, but it is kind of a, a change in how they had done it previously. And I'm sure Todd is really, really bummed out about missing that date. I think they wanted to go for like 11, 11, 22 originally, which I know, I know he loves those dates. So it would, it would have been great if they made it, but yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, Starfield is actually one of the first uh, games from that studio since Oblivion that I'm actually excited about. Um, uh, to be honest, because you know it's like it's oh, right up my alley. It's about you know like space. It's supposed to be like hard sci-fi too, uh, which is pretty rare in the days of you know Marvel Cinematic Universe of anything being hard sci-fi anymore. Uh, so that's really cool stuff. Um, but I'm right on John, uh, right with John here, where I think if they have to delay the game. It's much better than bringing out a product that is technically broken. They've always had pretty good PC releases. Um, when all these things happen, you know, even at the worst, I would say Fallout 4 was at least pretty playable on PC at launch. Uh, it required some hefty CPU, though, if I recall. Um, so 
Yeah, so like that's that's kind of the way I feel about it. I still have no idea what Redfall is, and I'm a little worried about that title of being like not form fit from the developer that it's coming from. But but that requires me seeing gameplay first. Um, for for me to say that, I don't think the initial trailerification trailer they brought out actually did anything for me. Um, kind of similar to Starfield, but at least we saw in engine stuff there. So. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we've got a very interesting question from supporter Joe Esposito. <laughs> the kind of radical approach to uh, addressing the whole delay thing. Microsoft recently announced delays on high-profile games and naturally a segment of angry man-children <laughs> <laughs> took the news as an excuse to lose their minds. They're <laughs> like hulking out, but without any of the muscle bulk. Yeah. <laughs> or green skin. Uh, since release delays feel nearly inevitable and in light of these pathetic fan reactions and how widespread crunch is in the industry is it time for companies to just shelve the idea of release dates and stick to releasing games when they're ready i don't think you can apply a blanket statement to any of this because the the game release machine is too large marketing itself requires striking deals like so far in advance of release and just it's a difficult thing. I do believe, however, that it's in their best interest to wait until they're at least reasonably confident or at least when sharing dates do so sort of like a we're targeting this period. But, you know, we'll see, because when you when you in the, like in the case of Starfield, where they very specifically picked a date like that, a hard date, one that they clearly wanted to hit and then it's gone. I think that isn't the best situation for anyone really so you know they should just basically give a, a broad indication of when it's coming and that's it i mean the, i guess the, the thing that i'm sort of taking away from joe's question here is that he just doesn't believe release dates anyway <laughs> so what's the point of having them i a lot of games where you see the the release date where they a lot of the games that said 2022 for example it was like really obvious at the time that those weren't 2022 games um so i can definitely believe that but also i'm a person who doesn't pre-order games so i don't care so i don't care like i just don't care if the game's delayed i'm always like oh i can play my backlog back catalog As steam games there's so many thousands of steam games i can play uh so i don't feel so bad that's a great point alex and some i always see people the the so-called angry man children that he's referring to and they're on all sides or whatever they love to throw around this idea that oh your platform has no games that's never actually true right like there are so there's too many games out there right now i would argue there's so much stuff to play I just wish I had time to just like freeze all releases for a while and just, you know, finish up some of the games that I really want to get through. There's too much. Uh, like you don't have to just pour everything into these gigantic 10 pole releases. There's other stuff that's just as good or better that you can find if you look for it. So like when you see somebody saying that X platform has no games, it's always BS. Unless you're referring to arguably, I don't know, like, I want to say the CDI, but even that has a few games. Then Nintendo 64, <laughs> six months after launch, maybe? I don't know. I mean, it, it, had, it had good games, though. So, so I mean, that is actually the N64 is one of the last times where you could actually say, like, there's basically nothing new because the games came out so slowly. I mean, I think the first year had, like, 20 games total, maybe less, even. It's a very low amount. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point, right? Because um, the, the concept of cross-gen 
and also the fact that there is such close commonality between this generation and the next from the hardware perspective means that it's actually quite easy to refresh a game uh, from the last generation for the current generation. The thing I'm thinking about at the moment is there's a big story at the moment where apparently um, Assassin's Creed Origins is going to get a 60 FPS update, which is, you know, highly likely to happen, bearing in mind it happened to, to Odyssey. And, you know, if you've not played Assassin's Creed Origins before and you fancy it, can't say it's for me, but, you know, this is a good chance to go back and re revisit that game because it still looks great. And now it's running at 60 frames per second on your new console. So you're quite right, John. There's there's a whole bunch of opportunities to revisit um, games that are available. And the library has never been more packed, really. It's just this, this question of new games, right? And new games fueling hype and excitement. And uh, which, you know, uh, Yoda style leads to hate and suffering when they get delayed. <laughs> We've been eagerly anticipating the arrival of the latest Hitman 3 update because um, PC side, at least, it's going to benefit from some hardware accelerated ray tracing. And we're all here for that, obviously. This week, um, it looks like IO Interactive put out the <laughs> requirements for the ray tracing effects uh, for Hitman 3. And man, it's looking really, really heavy, isn't it, Alex? Yeah, 1440p with DLSS or FSR uh, 1.0, not 2.0, unfortunately. Um, and it requires a RTX 20, uh, 3070 on the NVIDIA side, so kind of like RTX 2080 Ti territory there. And then the AMD side is an RX 6900 XT, the behemoth GPU uh, from AMD there. So. I think this uh, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, let's look at those specs requirements. Uh, and I think this game was actually not developed necessarily 100% with NVIDIA and AMD GPUs in mind uh, regarding the, the hardware ray tracing. Rather, as GDC presentations show, it was developed, I think, uh, with the hardware accelerated ray tracing performance of the highest end Intel Arc GPU, the DG512 or something. Uh, I forget the exact name of it. Uh, basically, the, the largest model that is rumored to have RTX 3070 performance or so. Um, so that's why I think it is the way it is on the spec side of things. Uh, we know that Intel's hardware accelerated ray tracing is a lot much more similar to NVIDIA's approach with all the way the things it's accelerating, and it's even accelerating more uh, than what we see on Empire Turing. I think it's doing hardware uh, bending of rays, as well as there was recently, I think it was at, I forget the name of the uh, the, the conference, but they uh, laid out the fact that they support uh, the hardware uh, uh, traversal shader in ray tracing, like in hardware itself, something that was just like theoretical beforehand and pr uh, proposed, but it wasn't really supported in hardware, but they support it. So they're going like the extra mile there for uh, ray tracing and path tracing. So that's why I think it requires a similar level uh, NVIDIA GPU there. And then of course, AMD who accelerate less there in hardware, requires a really big GPU. So that's really funny uh, and interesting in its own right. But also, I'm going to cover this, uh, but I think it is really weird that we're seeing, and we're going to see, we already saw this with Domin, I think that's the name of the game, Unreal Engine 4 title, um, that this is a title that was supposed to be launching with Intel's GPU release, their desktop GPU release. And here we are. The GPUs aren't there. Apparently, they're not going to be here for a good long while, and they're only launching uh, within the PRC. So, uh, you know, we have games launching 
with hardware features and software features for the GPUs that are not there. I can't even think of a time this has happened in recent history. Uh, maybe like the like the R six hundred launch back in the days. The last time it's we saw kind something of amazing, Alex, because obviously uh, Turing launched without any games. Yeah, and, and that now we have the inverse deal. happening where uh, Arc is coming <laughs> out with games but no hardware. Yeah, oh god, that, that, I almost forgot about the Turing launch. We didn't get hardware ray tracing until four months afterwards with uh, Battlefield, I yep, believe. that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, so that took a while. Uh, here, it's the opposite. I, I, really wa I was really looking forward, actually, to Hitman's season year two, I don't know what they call it, year two uh, ray tracing release because it was supposed to have XESS, ray tracing, DLSS, and all these things. And it would have been an amazing uh, comparison video as well as looking at the hardware implications of all these things. But alas, it's now going to be probably split up into two videos over time where I cover the ray tracing now and XESS in the future. So what is um, Hitman 3 ray tracing actually doing? And can you come up with a reason why it needs 3070 level performance? Yes, easily. Um, so Hitman is doing ray trace shadows and ray traced reflections. And the thing that makes, uh, I, I would say, these things, specifically the reflections, so expensive in uh, Hitman is the level setup. You have like levels where like the Dubai stage, the first starting stage is just like full of glass. It's just all glass. And they're doing transparency, uh, 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 translucency reflections. Uh, but, that, but then I think it's also the, the Hitman games design is really important here because there's like hundreds of NPCs and all that like BVH structure updating for all these skinned objects. Um, this is where we see games usually have trouble in the past and they tend to cheat here quite heavily. You know, like they, you know, uh, update characters at like 15 hertz or something like that, or they purposely don't update them at all and they're only done as green spaced, you know, things like that. Uh, here, I don't think they can get away with that so much so due to the, the level layout. So it's gonna be really expensive uh, compute wise. And I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna be interesting to see. I, I'm really excited to see the way these stages look because they already had an interesting uh, reflection system beforehand, very hand-tailored, uh, and to see it replaced with something more systemic and holistic, it's going to look really good. Their previous reflection system was quite good in many stages, but obviously it wasn't usable in all cases, and I think the Dubai, Dubai stage in particular is going to benefit from this because that did lean heavily on uh, techniques like SSR, I believe, that didn't necessarily hold up well when you have those large crowds. Uh, you'd see a lot of that stuff where, depending on the angle, things are just cut off and you're just seeing like cube maps and it's not great. So, yeah, this should be an awesome addition. This is not coming to consoles, is that right? Because I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think they've is said it, anything about PC that. Exclusive? I think well, it's yeah, PC exclusive. If your AMD system requirement is a 6900 XT, <laughs> that's going to be quite <laughs> challenging for a console, right? Yeah, they're going to have lower settings, thankfully. I think that reduced the resolution heavily. Um, they also had a minimum spec there that was a RTX 2060 Super and a RX 6600 XT. Um, but, you know, it's, they didn't also say what frame rate and, uh, for that. So who knows? Yeah, I bet if they did this on console, it would just be ray traced ambient occlusion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to be interested to see this because that system requirement wasn't just talking about. Uh, 1440p resolution they were suggesting upscaling as well yeah so dlss so yeah i mean uh i am gonna be first in line to watch your content and because i run the channel 
I will be. <laughs> you will be, I will, literally. I will be the first to watch that video unless John gets there first. So I'm going to be uh, looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the next topic. Um, I don't know too much about this one, but it was uh, released this uh, announced this week that Test Drive Unlimited Solar Crown um, has actually, in common with Gotham Knights, ditched its last-gen version. I don't know anything about this game, John. I didn't even know of its existence until this point. Obviously, I lead a very sheltered existence. Um, what's the story here? What's the game about? And is there anything we can derive from this axing of the cross-gen or other the last-gen versions um, that is indicative of, of, of the game and its ambition? I think to, to understand the excitement, potential excitement for this, because it's still, it's unclear how good this will actually be, but uh, Test Drive Unlimited, I think, is an important game because it was actually, I would argue, one of the first to present the almost Forza Horizon style experience, right? This was an early Xbox 360 game, uh, though it has other conversions, where it presents you with a gigantic one-to-one -one scale open world to drive around, tons of events to do within there, and it was extremely well done at the time, and it's been absent for many, many years. And they have a new developer, a developer that has done a lot of the WRC games, actually, in recent years, uh, at the helm on this one. And uh, it's hard to say how much we know about it, but as a large-scale open-world driving game, you can imagine that by ditching the last-generation machines, it potentially opens them up to remove some of the potential shackles uh, from the design and no longer have to spend that time optimizing it for those platforms. So... Again, the di I I don't think we've actually seen much or any gameplay though, so it's still kind of a strange thing. But it was supposed to come out this year; it's been delayed, <laughs> like so many others. Um, but I am eager to check it out, and I really hope they can bring back Test Drive Unlimited because yeah, it was a really cool game. And by the way, I recently checked out Test Drive Unlimited for the PSP, based on the suggestion from someone that it was ported by Melbourne House. Uh, which is known for their awesome, amazing work. They did the Test Drive Le Mans game on uh, Dreamcast, by the way. But they actually managed to deliver a full open-world driving game in the style of Forza Horizon on a PSP, and it actually works. It's like, I, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. We'll keep an eye on it. It's definitely one I want to look at when it does arrive, though. And I hope that they can pull it off. Does this have any uh, interest to you, Alex? I mean, fundamentally, if there's no cross-gen or other no last-gen versions of the game, conceivably you would expect to see PC being pushed more as well? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. I, I haven't really played this since the original. So, like, I, I've, I have the PC original there, um, and I've played that, and I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but I haven't played this series of games in, in eternity, so I don't really know what to say about it other than, yeah, cool, ditch that cross-gen. Please, everyone ditch cross-gen. But John, I do think uh, that you're selling a particular game short. Obviously, the original precursor of Forza Horizon was uh, Cars Mater International. Is that a good one? <laughs> well, I think this came this came before. <laughs> this came, Test Drive Unlimited predates that game. Really? So it wow. does. Oh my gosh. I mean, technically we saw open world stuff with like Need for Speed Underground 2 and all that, but that was a very different vibe and kind of a more constrained city environment where Unlimited really is that gigantic open environment, much like Forza Horizon. So I, I kind of want to trace the lineage back and see if it actually is the first one like that, though. But it feels like it's one of the very first to really do that. 
Uh, okay, well, let's move on to our final news topic of the week. And this one is uh, curious uh, more than anything else. In that it looks as though developers have actually aimed to bring a Nintendo 64 port of Portal into existence. Challenging game. I, I think this is pretty amazing because um, there's certain... Uh, you know, you reach a certain level of performance, a certain level of horsepower that opens up the opportunity for new gameplay concepts. And I think uh, Portal... Although it was quite light at the time, you know, it wouldn't have been possible on these earlier consoles. But here it is. I did have a, t a quick look at the at the, uh, the footage. It seems to obey the laws of Portal. Looks pretty impressive. You took a look at this one, right, John? Yeah. So this this one fascinates me. Just for the sheer ambition of trying to do something like this on N sixty four, but it's also one of those things where some expectations need to be tempered in the sense that what we're seeing so far anyway is not it's not actually portal the game as we know it right it is a small concept with the portal design in it right like it's designed to look kind of like portal these small tiny little test rooms where they're able to spawn the red and blue portal and then you can move through it just as you do in the original game they also show one of the cubes in there uh and unfortunately the physics are a little bit wonky still so but but it is just a tech demo um and just the fact that it works at all and it's kind of an active development is fascinating and i'm i'm going to kind of keep an eye on this and see what becomes of it uh another thing i wanted to mention real quick though is it's this demo seems to not use uh, texture filtering for which is which is an important, from what I could tell, because it's that's not something you really, really ever saw on N64, except if using the quack mode cheat in Turok 1. <laughs> but other than that, you know, that, game, that system was known for extreme texture filtering. So this is kind of a unique thing. But I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Alex, because uh, I know you have a soft spot for the 64. Yeah, I got a soft spot for it. Um, Turok's on there. How can you not? Um, but here, I think the interesting thing is I'm really a big fan of uh, modern day projects targeting older hardware. Uh, you see it, uh, you know, I would say for the 2D consoles quite often, uh, but less so the 3D ones. And that's uh, really interesting uh, from my perspective to see someone try and bring these uh, newer game concepts to the N64 hardware. At the same time, I actually don't find it so uh, crazy that they're doing this because if we think about back in the time, portals in games were somewhat uh, common, more commonplace than they were, than you may think. And, you know, you have stuff like, this is around the time, you know, like a little bit later in the N64's life, Prey is announced, and they show off portals back then. And it wasn't running very well either, but I could have imagined at that point in time that there could have been a really heavy demake of that uh, to run on the N64. So it's not so it's not so out there. I, I'd well, say in, it's pretty in cool. a way. A lot of early 3D games also used like sort of a portal like system for mm -hmm. the design, right? Like it wasn't like this where you're dynamically placing portals, but it has some similar similarities. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like you know, technically what Mario 64 is doing with its like uh like all those areas with the mirrors and the the reflections usually it's like you can imagine that as a portal idea just like doubling the geometry going into another realm uh things like that uh, so i think it's really cool and i the one actually the aspect that i really liked about this is there was multiple portals showing double portal effects uh which i'm not sure how they did necessarily uh so it'd be really interesting to to see if this is actually blown out more into a larger size game one with that actually has 
uh, more than just a test room that actually has some of the, the cool puzzle encounters that we see in the real portal. I do wonder whether it's just going to hit hardware limits, though, because as you say, John, the, the content is quite limited in what we saw. And the question is, how far can you push it? Yeah, fundamentally, I mean, the actual maps in Portal are significantly more complex than this. And do they even have the headroom to do like all the scripting stuff with the voiceovers and like really deliver that game? Or is it literally just going to be like, you know, simple rooms with the Portal mechanic? And I, I'm that's why I want to watch it. I want to see how far they can actually push this concept and how close they can get to creating a portal-like experience on the system. We're going to go straight on to our supporter Q&A section. And to begin with, it's dominated, perhaps inevitably, by questions surrounding FSR 2.0. Now, we talked about it a little bit in last week's Direct, uh, but the man who was actually doing the coverage was still doing the coverage at the time, so we couldn't go in depth on it. But he's here now. He's eager to talk about image reconstruction in general and FSR 2.0 in particular. And uh, I guess we should just dive into the questions, right, Alex? Because there's there's a big bunch of them here. Uh, most of them easy to answer, I, I assume. But, you know, let's get into it. First question from Dan Matt. Thanks to Alex for his great video on FSR 2.0. Seems performance mode isn't terribly worthwhile given the level of artifacts. How does balanced mode fare? Was performance mode that bad? I think it was just... It's just um, not as good as DLSS. That's the thing. Yeah, I think yeah, that's it's, it. it's, yeah. yeah, like it, it all depends on like tolerances. Uh, worthwhile, like it's definitely worthwhile if you want better performance and an okay image quality. You just have to, you know, the artifacts are there and you have to deal with it. Um, and I think its utility just drops heavily when you go down from 4K. I think it is not so great at 1440p, definitely not so great at 1080p um, always. It's just, just with the way that game is set up. So I don't think it's so bad. It's just, you have to have a tolerance level for certain things. Um, balance mode, uh, at 4K uh, is, uh, I didn't cover it in the video because I was trying to do limit, you know, I had four days to essentially work out this video. <laughs> so I had to limit all the things I could cover. Um, but I did uh, also load up balance mode. It's a, it much like you can imagine. It is not as good as quality mode, not as not as artifacty as performance mode. Uh, but at the same time, you're I think the thing with FSR 2.0 is it's a little bit dependent upon what kind of GPU you're running it on because the, the cost of it is not uh, something where you can just go like, oh yeah, let's uh, just run it no matter what. Uh, you have to be a little bit more, how do you say it, like cognizant of the millisecond performance cost of what you're running anyway. So sometimes performance mode actually makes the most sense for a number of GPUs to get the most out of it. Uh, because you're otherwise paying for the cost of all those extra pixels you're rendering for not too big of a difference always in image quality. So that's the one thing you got to think about if you have a lower-end GPU. And that's why if we do talk about the Steam Deck and FSR 2.0 at some point, it would be uh, pretty important to talk about that because the quality mode from everything I'm seeing on Steam Deck is kind of like <laughs> you're not getting a lot of performance back. Uh, you could get technically aspects of image quality being better, but also a number being worse. So it, it is, it's a question. I do think, as with DLSS, I've always been a fan of either using performance or quality mode. And I've always found balance mode is something where I just go like, meh, I don't, I don't use it too often, actually. But isn't it the case that um, 
1440p is actually going to be a very important target for this because that's where most of the uh, of the screens are being sold. Yeah, that is that is true. Um, I guess that requires a we have to just see more uh, implementations. I think Deathloop. I, I think it had a pretty good DLSS implementation, minus some of the bugs I talked about in the video, uh, or the bug I talked about in the video. Uh, and I think maybe it's hard to really judge if some of the artifacting I saw in Deathloop is inherent to just what FSR 2.0 does. Uh, so its utility at 1440p is somewhat of a question mark now, but it will become more clear over time when we see the second, third, fourth, fifth game that use FSR 2.0. Deathloop was an interesting choice because uh, the native resolution rendering, and I'm assuming the TAA implementation, is, isn't is great, which basically sets up DLSS and FSR 2.0 quite well as a comparison point. Um, because, you know, obviously if native isn't pristine, then there's a lot of leeway when you when you've talking about uh, upscaling formulas. Oh, for sure. That's something we've seen a number of times again. I, I would be really interested to see episode 2.0 and something like Doom Eternal, where we saw their 8x TSSAA, or whatever they call it, uh, is actually pretty good looking in general, I would say. And it, you know, DLSS was not like the clearest, uh, it didn't have that awesome clear win that we saw like in Control, for example. John, you've taken a look at uh, FSR 2.0. What do you what do you think? I loaded up Deathloop as well, and so obviously I'm using an RTX 3090, right? So pretty high end right now, uh, and thus I still determined that in this case DLS. I did prefer the look of DLSS, but I felt like this gets close enough where I would be perfectly satisfied with using it. And I think going forward, you know, I, testing the lower resolution monitors is going to be key. In my case, I'm using 3840 by 1600, so pretty high res as well. And I, I genuinely think that unless you're looking very closely, uh, most people are going to find that it ends up looking just about the same uh, in this case, right? Where the differences are relatively minor and in different parts of the image, as Alex pointed out, uh, like specifically around certain like transparency effects and stuff. FSR seemed to lose some detail compared to DLSS. But overall, you know, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm eager to see where it goes. And, you know, obviously a lot of these questions are asking about what about consoles, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily clear cut there either. So, well, we've got a couple of questions regarding the consoles, so let's tackle them head on. I'm going to group two of these questions together since they're essentially asking the same thing. The first one from Paul Kalamata. Do you foresee a broad implementation of FSR 2.0 in future PS5 and Xbox Series games? And will this technology ensure that 60 FPS modes on console games continue further into this generation as we move towards more demanding next gen? A engines and put the cross-gen period behind us. This question from Axel, very similar. Hello, DF! Exclamation point. Do you think FSR 2.0 will be widely adopted by a lot of studios for the new consoles? I think it could be really a game changer for consoles to get more 4K 60 FPS games. So this is an interesting conceit, right? Because um, fundamentally, FSR 2.0 is building on the work that has already been done in consoles since like 2015, 2016. So, ah, well, how do you tackle this one? I think the question is, Alex, in your video, you uh, positioned FSR 2.0 as a kind of um, second generation temporal upscaler on par or in the same sort of ballpark as Epic's, tem uh, Epic's temporal super resolution. 
So is it the case that this simply gives developers more options and potentially uh, a higher quality version or an alternative technology to what they're already using? Yeah, I think, so in the past, I've been more critical of this idea because I thought, you know, PC space, just developers just don't, for some reason, they don't invent, they don't use DRS on PC, even though it's 100% technologically possible. Uh, they don't just offer it, even though it's there. And they, you know, sometimes, even though the console version will use TAAU, they just don't have it at all enabled on PC for reasons unknown. And I thought this, much like a lot of things, it's just a brand and a, and a thing of mind space to attach to for developers to finally put this technology on PC. Uh, you know, maybe even in a broader implication than DLSS has been, which I think is actually really huge now. DLSS is really huge, how often it's integrated in games. Um, so that was my idea in the past. Uh, but now looking after FSR 2.0 after it's launched, I do think it offers a more compelling visual experience than I expected. I was originally expecting TAAU levels of quality, and I think this exceeds that TAAU threshold that I kind of put in the video. And I'm thinking about like the TAAUs seen in a lot of um, Ubisoft titles as well as Unreal Engine. And you know, I do think uh, the fact that you can get a reasonable approximation from a 1080p image, uh, internal image up to 4K, it has a high frame cost. Don't forget, high frame time cost when, when you're doing that. But you're getting that. And I don't actually think we see that out of any of the console solutions at all that we've seen before uh, from any developer. It, you know, that 4X multiplier is really huge. Uh, and the fact that it was looking like it does in a still versus the native, it had issues of its own variety, but it was much better than I was expecting. So I, I think that's maybe where we could see it. For the developers that are targeting 1080p internal resolution and they want it to look better at 4K. And I think it does actually have some ap applicability to the console space. But at the same time, I don't know if every developer wants to do this always because they have their own in-house solutions. They may also want to have different visual quality targets. They may not want a 1080p internal image due to the artifacting and all these things. So I'm still a little split, actually. I would love to give a much straighter answer to you. Both Axel and Paul here were, in the past I would have said this is more of a PC thing, but now it's a little bit wishy-washy. I have to wait and see uh, over time to see what the integrations are. Apparently. I always forget the name of this damn game, Forspoken. Um, <laughs> it was originally announced as using FSR 1.0 on PC and console. And at that time, I was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, but now they've announced, I think, in some sort of interview form that it's going to be using FSR 2.0, thankfully. Um, and uh, I believe the console version may also be using it, which would be great. Uh, so. I don't know, Paul, Axel, I, I wish I had a more straightforward answer, but let's just wait a little bit before we start saying things. Potentially an issue is that consoles is all about bang for the buck, right? And obviously FSR 2.0 will be an accelerant. But as you've said, the, the actual cost of FSR is significantly higher than FSR 1.0, which could be problematic. Presumably other solutions that they're already using that were designed to be performant within these constraints already. So I think the, the issue with what they're looking for here is I don't believe using FSR 2.0 would lead to more 60 frames per second. I think the cost is high enough that it isn't gonna, it can't be used to just boost your frame rate because there's gonna be other bottlenecks now as a result. Uh, but, you know, as you say, Alex, I could see maybe 
you know, a game that's already doing 30 FPS, just targeting that, using this to get up to a cleaner looking 4K presentation. And we probably will see it used in that capacity. That sounds really realistic in comparison because like, I think it, like I, I have to actually do this in a better way. The way, the way my video measured frame time in both ways that I use it is imperfect for a lot of reasons. I don't even need to get into it why, but like if I had a better understanding of say, like what the frame time cost was on a RX 6600 or RX 6600 XT, which is like getting in that console level of performance minus the infinity cache stuff, which we have to just deal with. Um, then I'd have a better understanding of like what we're looking at here, because I think it's actually such a significant portion of the frame time cost that it puts 60 FPS off the table without making compromises elsewhere. So I think it's more of a 30 FPS thing maybe on consoles at the 4K mode. If you're trying to use this FSR 2.0 in combination with ray tracing, it gets even dicier, right? They're competing for some similar resources and it's just, it's not, it's not a magic bullet. No, it is not a magic bullet. Unfortunately, like if this was, that's like, so, I mean, maybe there's another question that gets into this. I'm just want to look. Maybe there isn't really, but uh, one thing that I thought uh, with the video pointed out really well, and I've seen it after the fact now, uh, other people doing tests is like, okay, so FSR 2.0 is getting uh, a, not equivalent, definitely not equivalent, but in the ballpark levels of quality as we see with DLSS for certain aspects of image quality. So what's the whole point? Like the, this, like people want these techniques to be competing, but really we should see them as differences on the same thing and the advantages of one versus the other. And so DLSS, you can see the advantages there both in quality and frame time performance, but also in terms of uh, amount of compute and time and die space used to enable this feature. And that is actually pretty important in the end game here because DLSS can be less of a, most people don't actually think about DLSS as frame time cost because it's reasonable pretty much for all the desktop class GPUs. Uh, you don't think about that. You don't have that same thing with FSR 2.0. So like, that's why we should still want DLSS to exist after FSR 2.0's existence. Uh, we should want it to be continuing because it is a quality benchmark. We want FSR 2.0 to get up to there at some point. But also, I honestly do want to keep the, the, the this uh, direction of research going that is looking at how machine learning should be doing aspects of re image reconstruction. Because as the video showed off, the whole point of DLSS is to do the fitting of the previous fame information in a way that is more adaptive to the local content. Uh, and that shows off really well in the video, I think, with all the movement examples and, and the transparency examples. Uh, and that's what we want out of FSR 2.0 one day. And there's a reason why it works so well in DLSS. That's the whole point of the, the, the research paradigm there. Uh, so don't try and make these things so competitive, I would say, even though it's just like a really big uh, headline grabber. DLSS killer is one of the dumbest things I've read in a while. Um, <laughs> uh, we should really want these techniques to advance along in a sidestep manner with each other. Furthermore, I mean, the targets are different, right? NVIDIA is pushing machine learning, cutting edge technology there, trying to improve things where obviously the goal with FSR 2.0 was to get as close as possible to those results while making something that's more compatible across, across a wider range of products, right? That's something that didn't exist with DLSS and it fills a need, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or. They're both valuable and interesting. Although Alex, I am curious to see 
test i tests on like what's the lowest end possible gpu you can use fsr 2.0 with and what's the actual that's a good question time cost on that (laughs) (laughs) i i guess we'll see if i do any steam deck uh stuff because uh technically you know you can you can you can hook up a monitor to the steam deck to get out of the 1280 by 800 range and i've done that before i think a lot of people are and it would be really funny to see what the heck what the heck that does at 4K? Like, what is the frame time cost? Because there was a, actually interesting cases with early DLSS 1.0 where NVIDIA purposefully limited the resolutions that it would scale from because DLSS 1.0 execution time, which was much higher than DLSS 2.0's execution time, uh, would become greater than the amount that you would have spent while actually rendering real pixels. So I wonder if that happens with FSR 2.0 at some GPU at some level. That was a kind of weird one, right, with uh, DLSS 1.0. And I think it cropped up in your Shadow of the Tomb Raider interview, where it wasn't actually immediately apparent before that the scaling factors were different on different RTX GPUs for the same quality level at the same resolution. And it's like, well, this makes benchmarking a complete waste of time because the you know, from, from GPU to GPU, because the output uh, results were so different. Yeah, bizarre. What a time. What, what a time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the next question, which is kind of an extension of what we've been talking about. This one from your man in Penang. Love it. Oh, yeah. Given FSR 2.0 has shown that good quality temporal upscaling is possible without machine learning hardware, is it possible, or is it likely rather, that tensor cores will be less important or even omitted in future GPUs, do they serve any other useful purpose for the average user? I think before I go to Alex on this, and I think we've already covered it fairly you know, self-evident that DLSS is faster and has higher quality. Therefore, those machine learning cores are very, very useful. I think we need to take a, a more global look at the GPU market and why these things are being designed. Machine learning, inferencing, all of this stuff is hugely important in the enterprise sector. I mean, NVIDIA is making colossal amounts of money by having this best-in-class machine learning acceleration. Intel has uh, integrated those similar technologies into Arc because it's important for their server clients. It's going to become important for uh, uh, for the gaming sector simply because it's an extra resource that's available to developers. So I, you know, I don't think they're likely to remove tensor cores going forward. They're looking to consolidate designs across gaming enterprise, a whole bunch of markets. So, you know, it's they're here to stay. I think is the point. The question is how they're going to be used. But uh, what do you make of this question, Alex? Because you know, fundamentally, we've just discussed that DLSS runs faster exactly because of this acceleration factor, and produces better quality results, right? Yeah, that's that's the thing. And according to tests online that I saw in Beyond 3D that I linked somewhere, I don't know, I maybe leaked them on Twitter to someone, um, that uh, a big portion of this is because it's using a different aspect of the GPU with fixed function hardware. Fixed function hardware always does the same thing at a lower energy and technically die utilization cost. So if you run DLSS, uh, at the same frame rate as an FSR 2.0 presentation, it'll actually use a lot less power is a really interesting aspect of DLSS. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like 40 to 50 watts on a RTX 3090. That's not, that's a significant, uh, uh, you know, savage of perform, uh, 
wattage there. Uh, but I think uh, the exact reason why we do want them, they're, def they're definitely going to continue putting in tensor cores because DLSS is not going away at all. It's just going to keep flourishing, I think. And also because the applications of machine learning in the video game space in real time is still so in so much active development and research, and we've already seen some really cool stuff uh, for the future that's going to be happening. So I, I definitely don't see it at all going away. In fact, I'm going to see more. We're going to see more over the next five to ten years of machine learning and tensor core usage, and maybe even more novel usages than just uh, one aspect of the image reconstruction pipeline. I fully expect to see uh, AMD add their own tensor core equivalents, uh, sim similar to the way Intel did for Arc, uh, simply because it's the direction of travel. It's what customers want, even if it's not quite what a gaming uh, customer might want in the here and now. It's just, you know, it's just essential as part of the makeup of a GPU. Anything to add to that, John, or should we move on to the next one? All I would say is that it's pretty obvious that machine learning is kind of the future, right? We're not walking that back. We're moving in that direction. So it's far more likely, like you say, that AMD will be adding this and other manufacturers as well, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and there will be, continue to be a focus on machine learning and what it can do for us. And we're just, I think we're just seeing the beginning. Next question from Yogi. Uh, emulators like Yuzu and RPCS3 implemented FSR 1.0. Do you guys think we'll see them add FSR 2.0 as well? Is FSR 2.0 more complex to work with than FSR 1.0? I think it's important to sort of uh, draw the line in the sand here, Alex, because um, they're two very different techniques and the requirements uh, for running FSR 2.0 to deliver those far superior results require far more inputs. Yeah, this is basically... It's what what you're asking for the yogi. It would be great if that was a possibility, but it's actually not. Uh, unless, well, people have been doing really interesting things with the RPCS3 with like ripping out parts of like the SPU uh, stuff that's done, like the post processing. So maybe there's a technical capability of one game getting a form of TAA for some reason, and then someone plugs in FSR 2.0 to that, but that I don't think that's going to happen. Basically, FSR 1.0 was so easily integrated into emulators and almost any game, you could literally just download the equivalent of like a reshade plugin and do it for every game on your PC, uh, excluding the fact that you would have HUD scaling in there as well, too, uh, because it was literally just an upscaler. It was only doing one thing to the image. It didn't require anything other than like the final color output of the image. Uh, and any, you know, that's just like running like a contrast filter or a sharpening filter at that point. It's really easy to implement. Um, FSR 2.0 requires a lot of things. It requires uh, both that color input, it requires depth, uh, which you can get from some games on PC, for example, and uh, as well as on emulators. But what it cannot get is uh, motion vector data, which it requires, uh, and the, the fact that the frame needs to be offset and jittered in the, the, the matrix and things like that. Like, games are not doing that. So there's no, nothing you can do there with FSR 2.0. Basically, in the end, FSR 1.0 was simple, so therefore universally able to be added, and had very limited quality. Uh, FSR 2.0 has a much higher quality because, much like DLSS, it requires a lot more input and developer time and cannot just be added in. It's impossible to just add in to a game. Uh, so that's that's the way it is. Uh, next question from Mr. Ratchet. We're moving away from FSR now. 
Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. It's over. I like, I like this is a good one for you, John. Uh, why don't the console manufacturers release emulators and a way to purchase ROMs legally on the PC? I'd love to see the recompiled Xbox 360 titles used on Xbox One released on PC. Well, what we've got there is a very general question to begin with, and then a, a very specific offshoot of that question on the second one. Uh, well, tackle this one, John. What do you reckon? I think it's going to vary per first party essentially like microsoft i am actually surprised we haven't seen it because they are pushing this sort of pc and xbox strategy simultaneously but knowing what we know about the backwards compatibility process that there is actually like license negotiations and things that happen behind the scenes it's entirely possible that that's been deemed not worth doing that essentially like okay now we have to negotiate to have these games for a completely different platform the pc uh and i could see publishers not being on board with that maybe they're like well if it's just microsoft published games it's not enough to drive the whole service uh i i don't actually know outside of that why they wouldn't have done it with their current strategy whereas with sony and nintendo i'm not sure that they're that interested in driving sales of like a, a service like that on the pc they're happy to sell you well sony's happy to sell ports of games to the pc but I don't think they want to say, like, here's a bunch of PS1 and PS2 games that you can play on your PC. Uh, they, they barely want to do that on, on their modern consoles anyway. And only, only now in the form of that service, right? So uh, I think, as far as I can say, though, really, it's probably, at least in my opinion, it's probably just a licensing thing that would technically hold it up if they had the desire to do it. Because there is no real technical reason why it wouldn't actually be possible right yeah i mean i spoke to the compatibility team like years ago and i think they kind of hinted heavily that they could run recompiled xbox 360 games for xbox one on pc i'm just wondering whether there would be a certain technical flaw um you know a, a requirement to do it for example you know x amount of cpu cores available to, to make that happen. I think there's another issue, which is that most Xbox 360 games already have a PC version. So why would, you know, obviously there are titles that, you know, aren't there, but the vast majority of multi-platform, I mean, this was the generation where multi-platform became the norm, right? So, um, you know, the games are actually available already. It would be a subset of a subset basically that they could possibly release easily. And I'm sure it's not really worthwhile, but your requirements thing is interesting because that's something that's going to vary based on what level of emulation you're attempting. Right. Uh, where like older systems, no problem, but for the newer stuff, like for Xbox one, for instance, I mean, they would probably have to ensure like you meet a very specific minimum requirement because these games aren't like PC games where they are kind of, I guess, designed to, run on a certain specific piece of hardware and like going below that could cause weird unpredictability that they can't guarantee will be fully functional so interesting question nonetheless because uh obviously uh, i think it was phil harrison sort of talked about a potential role for emulation going forward Actually, sort of codifying that, making it official, 
I suspect that could be quite tricky, especially when it comes to, to selling ROMs on, a, on what would be effectively a new format where they don't have licensing rights. So yeah, I think that's probably the, uh, the, the main issue there. Let's move on to the next question from Modvan. After watching John's MotorStorm retrospective, it got me thinking about Sony's first party games. A lot of franchises were abandoned in the transition from PlayStation 3 to PlayStation 4. Uh, MotorStorm, Resistance, Siren, Killzone, Infamous, uh, Wipeout. Uh, Infamous. Killzone, Killzone made it to PS4. Infamous. Uh, yeah, and Infamous. <laughs> but I think we get the point. And right. Wipeout, but yeah. <laughs> I guess Wipeout, yeah, that's a good one, actually. Um, <laughs> and that's, not, uh, that's also not counting the PS2 era franchises that were similarly abandoned in the transition to PS3, like Jack and Daxter. People talk a lot about Nintendo's abandoned IP and long for the return of series like Golden Sun and F-Zero, but it feels like Sony's old series don't get that same fan demand. What first-party series from Sony would you like to see return? It's an interesting point, right? I mean, you know, obviously some of the specific examples there don't hold up, but the general sentiment definitely does. Um, MotorStorm, for example, um, is, is locked to the PlayStation 3 era. There are no new games there. Um, and going forward from that, possibly an even greater tragedy is that Drive Club uh, didn't even move forward to PlayStation 4 Pro, let alone PlayStation 5. John, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, MotorStorm and Drive Club are good shouts. And of course, Wipeout, even though it did exist in the form of PS4, I would love to see that return. But going back, uh, one of my favorite RPG series from the old days, I'd like to see Wild Arms return. Like proper, full, you know, reasonable budget Wild Arms game would be fantastic. Uh, he mentioned Siren as well. I love the Siren games. I think that would be interesting to see. They were really interesting horror experiences. Uh, going back further on PS1, I was just playing. I, I don't know how you'd do it, but I really enjoyed uh, Horned Owl on the original PlayStation. If anybody's played that, it's an interesting light gun game that's worth checking out with a really cool aesthetic uh that kind of stuff you know obviously there's a lot of weird stuff in their legacy that's good interesting fun that i don't know how you would make it come back but and revisiting the ps3 era it's interesting that it is actually the ps3 has a lot of that too it felt like that old legacy of theirs continued up through ps3 but then somehow they got all serious with the ps4 and everything went very western games and lots of seriousness and uh it just something was really lost during that generation uh i don't know what happened but there's this shift away from the more worldwide sort of anything goes kind of games to like we must make very serious games all the time yeah uh, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of third a person um adventure <laughs> slash action games now sad games, like them, games but as people there's, say yeah. there's so much of it now and they seem to just not be willing to do much of the other unique stuff that used to define the playstation like it's just like fallen by the wayside and i know budgets are higher these days but i'm sure they could do something smaller scale again and yeah it's it's a real bummer to see where we're at right now uh i almost wonder if it's just it feels like all of this is due to what happened during the, the PS360 era. The types of games that succeeded, what became popular, uh, the rise of multiplayer, the consolidation of console and PC into one. It changed something, in my opinion, for the worse. Uh, there's still good stuff, of course, but 
something that's that's a divide in the world of gaming that i i look back on you can definitely see a before and an after with this stuff and yeah sony was especially bad they closed up so many studios during the early ps4 era uh you know the european studios were decimated by and large they've closed off a lot of the japan studio stuff like it really is just like so many sad dad games <laughs> well microsoft had their own issues as well where they shuttered a lot of first absolutely first and they connected they both did you know, and yeah, that basically, you know, that's why they're on their current sort of buying spree at the moment, simply because, you know, the, the studios they had were let go, projects were, were cancelled. And that's kind of, you know, where we're at now. A bit disappointing, but yeah, fair enough. Next question uh, from SJ33 in brackets, Jake. And it's, it's actually a really good question. How many games have DRS yet still fail to reach their frame rate targets? Surely this is the point. Obviously, reducing the resolution doesn't always solve the issue, but there are numerous cases of games not having an aggressive enough lower bounds, seemingly by design. Why would a developer implement DRS yet not make hitting the frame rate target a priority? Good question, right? I mean, the obvious one that springs to mind is Elden Ring in its performance mode. And uh, I guess when we were looking back at Crisis Remastered and we had a bit of input into Crisis Remastered 2 and 3 where they dramatically expanded the DRS window and, and it actually paid off massively. Also Assassin's Creed uh, Valhalla at launch, you remember Oh that? gosh, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, why do you think it's happening, John? Do you think there is basically a, um, a, a threshold where a developer says, we don't want to take resolution lower because it will look bad. So we'll take the frame rate hit instead. I think it's going to vary from developer to developer, but some of the ones that I've talked to about this issue, it often is like, we don't want to go below a certain minimum. And they've determined that it's above X frame rate, a high enough percentage of the time that they're willing to accept that. Uh, but I think the user should always have the option for as much stability as possible when resolution is the limiting factor as it was in the case with the crisis remastered games where, and they admit now that that decision for the resolution targets was the wrong one. And it did have a negative impact on the experience there. Uh, and that has been sort of changed, thankfully. Um, but yeah, and there's, there's also issues with where you set that. So obviously with dynamic resolution, you're essentially trying to predict frame time dips, right? So when the frame time hits X value, the game should say, all right, drop the resolution by X amount. And you're trying to keep the frame time from going over a certain threshold. And we've seen cases where they might set that threshold a little bit too close to 16 milliseconds if they're targeting 60 FPS. And in those moments, you know, sometimes frame time dips can come out of nowhere. A huge action happens on the screen, giant explosion, a bunch of alpha effects in the screen, things like that that can cause a sudden sharp dip and it can be difficult for the DRS system to keep up if it's not aggressive enough in that regard. And I think that just comes down to different implementations. Uh, so, and not everybody is as sensitive to these dips as we are. Uh, some people don't mind it. And that's, we've learned more and more that a lot of developers that are testing this stuff, I mean, they, they look at the at the the raw data coming in from the sort of profiling tools but don't always look at the subjective view as to what the player is seeing by eye and there is actually a difference there in terms of what you see flu fluidity wise 
versus what the tools will tell you. I, I know Alex can attest to that as well, and that's something we've talked a lot about. Uh, here, uh, just to because uh, John covered basically everything that's really great about this. Um, there's always Jake, which Jake mentioned here, I think, oh, it doesn't always help. And I think you're referencing the fact that CPU limitations can come into concern there. But also uh, with modern games, ever since DX11 came about, you have like a, the ability to run compute shaders on GPUs where reducing the resolution has no effect on the, the compute performance because it's just like running some sort of static thing that always runs the same amount regardless of whatever the resolution is. So in the case of where um, uh, you would need to drop resolution or you're missing your frame time target with DRS and what would require to compensate in resolution uh, with all these compute tasks running in the background, it might be so extreme for that couple series of frames that you would want to have a lower bound limit because maybe it would go down to like 50, like 512 by 512. You, I, I can't really know. But like the, you've seen sometimes like cases like this when games launch and the, the, they say like, I think it was like with Battlefield where it could run at like 20 by like 20 pixels or something like that. There were like, you'd see screenshots online with people posting things like that. And I think it's because of reasons like that where the fixed time frame cost was so extreme that DRS did really extreme things. Uh, so that's just another thing. Conversely, that actually made me think about the, uh, the upper bounds on resolution, where some people say, well, just let it run all the way up to 4K. But that's actually not something you want to do and can cause a lot of frame time inconsistencies and other bottlenecks that may not seem obvious on the surface, but it's really detrimental to the experience. So finding that sweet spot, it's it's not that easy, I suppose. Quick question now, uh, next one from Edwin Crump. Uh, what video of yours have you been surprised at the numbers? Something that was an unexpected hit perhaps, or something that didn't land as expected? Well, you know, you know where I'm going here, don't you guys? I think so. Need for speed most yes. wanted. <laughs> <laughs> PlayStation yeah. 3 versus PlayStation Vita comparison. I put this together in an afternoon in 2013, just, you know, because you know, I quite like the game. And uh, as we <laughs> record this, it is now at, um, let's have a look, 2.03 million views. For reasons unknown. <laughs> and we just have no idea why it keeps happening. Uh, yeah, it just keeps accruing views. Uh, content is like, okay, so right, it's 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 a bit weird that it's continually racking up views, and has mm -hmm. done now uh, for nine years, over nine years, two million views. Quite pleased with that. Uh, any from uh, your perspective, Alex, that you're surprised about? Uh let me just did, think. When back you, when you did the... your uh, retrospective on the original crisis and how it still yeah, no, melts. I'd... No, I did not expect it to be that big. No, definitely not. Uh, it's like really successful video. I just watched the Warhead video this morning, actually, while I was sitting and drinking my coffee. I was like, hey, this is not a bad video. That, in comparison, did much worse. <laughs> it's like it's like one twentieth or so the amount of views, probably even less now, um, or more, because it's divisible. Um, but, you know, that's like one where I would say, yes, of course, crisis is mythological. But at the same point in time, it's so many years after the fact, People are more interested in other types of games nowadays. Also, for some reason, Crisis has a really bad reputation among a lot of people, just used as a tech demo. So 
I didn't expect it. And it did really, really well. And it, you know, at a, you know, it was pretty important for me uh, continuing and working at DF and the way, like the trajectory, trajectory of my career. Uh, so that was a, a really surprise. I am also technically still slightly surprised that uh, Command and Conquer's remastered doing so well uh, because the original Command and Conquer is so old. It's an RTS game. Like, no one cares about RTS, it feels like sometimes. Uh, like, most channels don't cover it at all. Uh, so that one surprised me for sure about how it rang uh, the nostalgia bone for so many people. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I'm looking at your crisis video now. It's on 2.04 million views. So you know, oh gosh, you, you have done better than Need for Speed PS3 versus versus Vita. <laughs> that's a that's a life time. achievement. <laughs> but you know, you look at some of the other stuff we've done. You know, like proper big exclusives, like you know, the first Xbox One X content. Xbox Series X content, PlayStation 5 exclusive. Yeah, they did well, but not as well as these <laughs> videos. Just, uh, John, any from your side that you uh, are sort of fascinated to see how they've racked up views over the years? Obviously, the nature of DF Retro is, is stuff where we'd expect them to increase over time. Yeah, and they mostly do, which is good. You know, they're always just kind of ticking up. Uh, I was thinking more the the inverse where... Uh, that onrush video i did all those years ago with those guys uh that whole documentary on that that was one of the biggest projects i ever did and it did horribly it failed so bad which is just due unfortunately to the lack of interest in the game but the game itself is quite good but even still i i'm i've always been bummed out that that was probably the highest example of of amount of effort put into something that was then not rewarded with like any views so nobody cared and that 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 stung for a while i have to admit but thankfully that kind of situation is quite rare <laughs> so yeah absolutely we have one more question here from uh gabe he says if you guys had the option to pick one game from any console slash PC generation to receive the full Quake 2 Minecraft RTX treatment, which one would you pick? This, this is actually a great question because it's something we've thought a lot about. I kind of, I, I have to admit, the one I've wanted to see for years is, well, okay, I'm going to say two. Uh, Unreal 1 and Doom 3. Yeah, John's got it. Those, those are the games I want to, to receive the full, you know, path-traced treatment. Uh, my goodness, would it be cool to see that? I don't think it will necessarily happen. I mean, we have seen some Doom 3 stuff, but, you know, I want to see it go all the way. And, yeah, it's, it's unlikely. But I don't know. What do you guys think, Alex? John, I think you, your choices are really great. Doom 3 is the one that you and I have talked about, like, that we feel is, like, it has to be done because it just makes so much sense given the game's design is all about light and shadow. Uh, so it seems really interesting. And I think Unreal is a really good choice as well, too, because there's a lot of things that that game does in terms of just like faking radiosity, faking volumetric fog, da da da. It's like, and no one's touched Unreal for so long. It's such a gorgeous game and no one's touched it. It has like, you know, minor DX10 ports uh over the years like renderers and things like that but that's really about it and epic it doesn't care mm, interesting choices um i'm gonna just go all out and say every sega model one model two oh model that's a good one game. too <laughs> oh. oh yeah they have that look they would be i think even so those cool. flat shaded polygon ones you know star wars arcade virtual fighter original virtual fighter they could actually look quite striking with full path tracing 
Mm-hmm. And that's before we even move on to like Daytona and Virtua Fighter 2 and stuff like that. They would be pretty phenomenal, right? Oh, God, that'd be really cool. <laughs> I've just yeah. blown your minds, haven't I? Uh, <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> there's like, like the, the more simple the visuals are and the more, I would say the usage of color is really important as well, too. That's why Unreal's really great. And uh, the Daytona and all those games have just like really vibrant colors. And you can imagine like the light interacting with those surfaces really well. Yeah, it would be so... That's one of the reasons why Minecraft is so striking, right? And Quake 2 RTX as well. That's why these examples are brought up because they're geometrically, technologically fairly simple games. But when you add in that realistic path tracing, uh, it gives it this like tangible quality. It looks like you're looking at an like a, an object that's real, but like like you would look at a toy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, get it. I mean, the reason why I chose those Sega games is specifically because um, what I found with remasters in general is that. Uh, the quality and the vision of the original design of the assets um, is kind of ageless. You know, class persists. uh, You know, uh, it's just always, will always look good. And to actually put that into that kind of environment where everything is is correct, mathematically correct, I think it would look just absolutely amazing. So yes, that's you know very simple target there. All of the sake of Model One, Two, and Three games. Start with Model One. I'm I'm I'm, I'm cool with that. But yeah, that's where I'd go. Wing War. <laughs> Do it all. Star Star Wars Arcade. Oh yeah. yeah. Virtual Racing. I mean, there's awesome. But we already have that M2 Virtual Racing. I want to see that taken to the next level. Mm-hmm. You know. I wonder if they could keep the eight-player split screen though, past racing. <laughs> that would be split screen. <laughs> actually, you know, we've, I've, I've joked about it before on the channel, but like past racing and ray tracing is actually kind of better for multiple viewpoints. Yeah, kind of. You're stuff. actually right. You're right. That's yeah. Just like people are always amazed. It's like, wow, all these objects have reflections on them. And it's like, well, that's kind of the that's benefit the, of it, right? The, like when you actually ramp that up, other methods get way more expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it. That's our show. And uh, if you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, share, uh, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. No guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. Um, uh, DF supporter program. Get involved. Uh, our, our community on Discord is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the bonus material put up on Patreon. Uh, Retro tier that we're hopefully very, very soon going to be uh, releasing our new uh, DF Retro episode, which is shaping up to be something truly amazing. Uh, early access to uh, standard content. Man, there's so much going on. We're here all day. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. <laughs>